Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. If you're joining us online, welcome. I'm Sarah Siders. I'm pastor of outreach here at Mosaic, um, and we are in the middle of our Benefit of Doubt series. Um, And we're just exploring together what it looks like to um, dive into this season that so many of us experience. Um, What what are the benefits of doubt? Are there any benefits, or do we just need to shut the whole thing down? Um, So over the last two weeks, we've been looking at this essential journey that shapes us as believers. Um, This is is something that is transformative for us. Doubt is. Um, And yet we often tend to resist it. So we're going to look into that just a little bit. Last week, Josh was talking about uh, the prevalence of deconstruction, um, which is something that many of us experience in our lives. And deconstruction, we're going to really zero in on that today. Um, But I want to do, before we get started, just a quick recap on the stages of faith. And this is built on um, the kind of a human development theory um, that helps to helps us to kind of like put the lens of, of human development on our spiritual journey. And so it, it's going to feel familiar to you. Many of you have heard it. And in fact, if you were here last week, you will hear, have heard Josh. But I just want um, <clears throat> to look into that, those stages just a little bit, because you might recognize yourself in one of the stages or, or maybe, you know, more than one. Um, but you also... Um, might you just need a quick refresher on what these are, um, and then we're going to, again, zero in on one particular one. So in stage one, this is the stage of faith where we're embracing everything. We're starting that relationship with God. We're like, okay, I'm all in. Everything is exciting. Everything is new. Everything is yes. Um, and for those of you who have had experience of faith, especially as an adult, or maybe you've renewed your relationship with God at some point, you're like, oh my gosh, I love this, and you're all in. Um, stage two is really getting into more of that discipleship phase. You are, are leaning into structure. You're leaning into maybe a little bit of black and white, what's right and wrong. Um, who can I trust? Who are those spiritual voices, um, those, the spiritual community that I can belong to? Um, In stage three, we get into uh, achievement, contribution. This is the growth and give back mode. And if we're honest, like most churches and organizations, um, even the, the, the companies that we work for, the organizations that we work for, they love the stage three person. The stage three person is all about like, okay, you know, that's your uh, next career goal. That's your next, like, okay, I'm doing all these things. You're getting an award, maybe. You're, you're being recognized for your contributions and your achievements. Um, and and I, I think our American culture is, like, run on this. Um, <clears throat> if you're familiar with the Enneagram, Enneagram 3, um, people tend to be very motivated by achievement. And so it's, like, stage 3 um, we, we get people to stay through and we're like, yes, it's, you're here, you've arrived. And you know, we have all these Enneagram three leaders that are like, yes, achievement, achievement, here's an award. And they're seeking that themselves. And it feels like that's where we know how to get people. We know how to get people to those stages. And those leaders are telling us that that is good. And then for many of us, something happens. There's a life or spiritual crisis. There is a death. There is a betrayal. There's a divorce. There's some kind of a breakdown. There is something where, like, maybe um, your relationship with God is changing. It feels like God himself is, is not responding the way that he did before. <clears throat> and um, we get dropped off at this stage called the wall. There is a loneliness. There's a disorientation. There's a loss that's at this stage and we are like, it feels like just 
the whole thing is breaking down. The wheels are falling off. Um, you know, if you have, have ever been to therapy, most likely you've gone to therapy when you're at this like stage four wall. That's the moment that, that like, you know, I'll share for me, that was the moment that I went from uh, seeing a life coach at different points to being like, I need a therapist. And I was a therapist, okay? So, I mean, I'm not trying to say that, like, I didn't need a therapist, but therapists, like, try to treat themselves, right? Like, if you're a doctor, you might, you know, write yourself a prescription, but you're like, I know what to do, you know? Um, and, and so I, I had I'd been able to kind of get by on that for a long time, and then all of a sudden I was no longer able. Um, and so what will often happen is when people get into this crisis, they will sometimes, you know, shut down, break down, have anxiety, have a, a mental health crisis of some kind. Um, but a safer thing that makes people less uncomfortable is just go back to stage three, sort of like kind of adopt, like, wait a minute, you know, I'm just going to go back a little bit. This is really uncomfortable. And to be fair, some people simply can't do that. Like the whole thing has truly broken down for them. But a lot of times there's also this regressing back into a more familiar stage where the rules work. Um, but here's the thing. We cannot, and, and this is why it's so uncomfortable, is that we actually don't have the ability to put our shoulder up against the wall and push through. It is not a will thing. It is not a like, okay, I'm just going to work really hard because that's what got you through the first three stages was your willpower, was sheer like commitment and, and learning and, and like, you know, achieving and all these things. And all of a sudden that those rules don't work anymore. And that is the entire point. That is what is supposed to happen at that stage. And so we have to remain at the wall and allow ourselves to be shaped by it or we can't get into stages five and six, where we experience freedom, we experience alignment with God, we experience generosity, where we're like living love. And most of us don't even know many people who are in stages five and six, not because we don't know people who are older, but because many people that we know that are older at various stages in our lives, middle life, older life, they're like, they've, you know, maybe they've gone back to stage three or they're just sitting there kind of grumpy and confused at the wall. And so to get into stages five and six, Josh and I have talked about this, and, and he, may, he may have said this in the sermon last week, but it's like, this is the church that we're, we want to be leading you to. We want to be able to, as an organization, move towards, like beyond stage three, and okay, you're giving back, good job. Um, you're checking all of the spiritual boxes. Thank you. Hooray. Achieve, achieve. We want to get you into a place where you're living from love. You're living from alignment with God. And, and that's going to look like so many different things. But the thing is, is that in order to get there, we have to be willing to sit down at the wall and set up our campsite and be like, okay, God, I'm going to be here and you're going to be here with me in this ridiculous, weird disorientation. And so I want to zoom in on stage four. I want to zoom in on the wall today, the, the, the stage of deconstruction. Uh, when I hit the wall a few years ago, I thought I'd already been through like my life hardship. Like, you know, in, when you're in your 30s and, and kind of in these like achievement stages, um, in my early 30s, I had gone through the stage of like learning to stand up for myself and have good boundaries. And I had had a mental health crisis after my second son was born. Um, and so I had, you know, gotten treatment and um, done a lot of things to help myself get past this depression and anxiety. 
And I mean, it was very, very bad. It was a very dark stage. And so as I was coming out of that and God was like showing me things about it, I, I uh, started to build my, my therapy practice around maternal mental health and all these things. And so my, my story, my life message, my business, my brand was built on me coming out of this hardship. And so I was like, I'm on the other side now. I'm on the other side. I have had the hardship has come and I faced it. And now there's this little tiny empire, sarahsiders.com, that you can visit and you can invite me to speak at your events and you can see me as a therapist. And don't worry, I will help you. I will be present with you, but I also have the answers. Hooray. Okay. Now, the thing is, is that I had come from a little bit of a hypey, happy, charismatic, you know, background. And there's a lot of great things about that. But I had developed a theology that was like, that worked for all the things that have been happening for me so far. So there was a, a big emphasis on faith, even miracles, praying for people, expecting the impossible, that, that the circumstances that are in front of your life are not permanent, that you can influence your life through prayer, through faith. You can speak to that mountain and make it move. And that was what I had come up in. There, I'm, I'm built for a purpose. I'm here for a destiny. And I felt really powerful. And so in that place, I was building my business. I was building my brand. And I, I, I left um, the, my government job and I started my practice. And we had, at that point, planted our church five years before. And our church was also in this place of growth and flourishing. And we had two services, and, and people knew who we were. Um, we were the church that was willing to talk about taboo things, about hard things. And, um, you know, we were, we were out of the woods. We, we had planted, and it was hard, but we had been through that, right? So the hardships were in the rearview mirror in everything. And so when, when I had a group of people ask me to run for city commission, I was like, this is my next, my next area of service. God's calling me to run for city commission. I'm going to do that. Of course, God's calling me to do it. And therefore, I will win. Duh, not a question. And so I'm going to run and I'm going to serve my community in that way. And my influence is, is increasing. It's this ripple effect, right? Because that's the trajectory that I was on. And then some things happened. And that's always the hinge point. And then something happened, Right? In the middle of my campaign, some people that I had been friends with and relied on and had even handed things to to run my campaign pulled out of friendship and life with me in, in a really like abrupt way, right? And for me at that time, I was leaning heavily into my support circles because I was doing something that was super scary. And everybody had said they were on board. And then all of a sudden, I was like back where I had started. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm still called to this, to, to run for city commission, so I'm just going to, you know, kind of pull together and, and push through. And then the election came, and you guys, I had punched out, I was so sure of my victory, that um, every time we would go to the door hangers, uh, there's, those little, there's like a little circle that you can punch out, the perforated circle in the center, and I punched all those out, and I had them stacked up like poker chips, and I had all my teammates um, save them. And so on the table at our watch party for the election, I had them all over the table. And I said, when we win, we're going to throw them in the air like confetti. You want to know what happened that night? 
a bunch of stacks of confetti stayed on the table. And we watched the percentages come in. And I lost by 110 votes by the advanced voting. Um, and I just, I was, I was stunned. I had no backup plan. I was following God. And so we're, we're here, we're, we're like, okay, trying to rally our church because we, we had kind of a hit and um, some people had left. And, and here I am, I'm losing, I lost the election and it's like, things are just starting to fall off. And I had been in therapy for a couple of months because I didn't, I couldn't talk to anybody. Like, I'm a pastor, I'm a therapist, I'm a city commission candidate. Like, I'm wearing all these hats. I, I'm like, who can I even say hard things to? And so we, we rally our church and we're like, okay. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know? And so I start sort of volunteering and doing some things. Still have my therapy practice, but it's like, Something is broken. Something's wrong. I don't understand it, but I, something is, is messed up. And so we, we bring our church together, and there's these teams, and we're like, all right, we're going to do this. Like, we understand who we are. We have our vision, and, and we're, and we're going to rally, and we know how the rally works. We know how to get people on board and get excited. And so we did that. And then COVID, and it shut everything down, and every plan that we had wasn't going to work how it was supposed to work. And people don't visit new churches during COVID. They don't even come to their own church. And so our, our friends moved away. People got stressed out because leadership during a pandemic is very hard. People stepped down. And by February of 2021, I was like, God, please make this stop. I never asked God to take away my ministry calling, but I did in February of 2021. It was done. I was like, make it stop. I, all of this, whatever this is, this service, sacrifice, I'm, what, what has it gotten me? You know, like we're, we're completely busted up by the side of the road. And then Josh and Ben started talking and there was this like, Hey, you guys are church plant and we're, you know, in this weird spot and we're all in weird spots, this pandemic. Why don't we just like come together? And so our churches started meeting and merging. And we eventually launched the, the, uh, the mosaic, you know, umbrella in earlier this year. And even that, the every era of that, like, okay, are we together? Okay, we're together, but we don't have a name. Okay, we have a name, but who are we? And who's part of this? Every single era of that hasn't gone how we thought. And so, so many times I have felt like those guys on the road of Emmaus and they're walking with Jesus and they don't know it's him. And all they just keep saying is we had hoped, we'd hoped that it would turn out different, that it would be better. We had hoped. And so during the last four years, the wall, the deconstruction for me has looked like I don't even know how to pray because I used to pray these big, powerful door kicking prayers. And now I don't know if those are the right prayers to pray. Like, is God going to do that now? I don't know. I would, I would pray these prayers and now it feels like sometimes they just fall on the floor. There was this community that we built and then rebuilt and then rebuilt. And it was like vaporized. 
again and again. I had friendships that I was like really leaning into that would just, you know, I'm very fortunate I have some amazing friends. Most of my friends are in my life. But, but sometimes I would really lean into something and then it would just get pulled out from under me in the last two years. And these goals that I had in front of me that I was certain of, they failed to materialize. And I was lost. And I would, I would ask questions like, what does God want from me? Who am I now? Who is God now that I don't know what to expect from him? I knew what to expect from God. Input this, output that. And now it's, it's broken down. What is the point of this? What, why am I doing this? Like I, I relate to, to Peter when Jesus was saying really hard things to all the people and they all leave him. And, and Jesus goes, will you leave too? And Peter's like, well, Lord, like you alone have the words of life. I mean, I'm not happy about it. But you have the words of life, so here we are. And it's like, that's it? That's what I, it's like, I don't, where else am I going to go? But I don't like this. This sucks. That's, that's the stage of deconstruction. And it turned out that, like, I was in really good company. That there were so many of our foremothers and forefathers in the Bible throughout Scripture that had these experiences, but like we didn't call them deconstruction because it's kind of like a cool academic word that we use on Twitter now X. Um, but but it was like you know deconstruction, right? Like, but but really it was just part of the journey. Uh, it turned out like if you remember the story of Elijah. Elijah was this prophet and nobody wanted him to tell them what God was saying because there was, you know, they had the, this, uh, false God that they would pray to and they would be like very brutal to themselves and they would like beat and harm themselves in order to get this God to pay attention to them. It was very sad and very screwed up. Obviously God didn't like that. And so Elijah had arranged this thing like, Hey, um, I'm going to put a sacrifice on an altar. You guys do the same thing. And whoever's God answers with fire from heaven. What? That's such a risk. Whoever has God answers with fire from heaven. That's the real God. They're like, cool. So they do it. They do this whole all day thing. The real God answers with fire and literally burns up not only that his, the, his sacrifice, but everyone's. And it feels like real triumphant, right? Like he wins. He goes into a deep depression. Have you ever gone through something like that? Where like, Something that you're fighting for happens and then you're like just totally destroyed. Why? That's relatable, isn't it? Right? That's a deconstruction. John the Baptist, his entire life was about announcing Jesus, right? And he's in prison and he's saying, he says, he sends word through his disciples to Jesus and he goes, are you the one we should be waiting for? Or should we look for someone else? Because this isn't how it was supposed to go, right? I was your guy. I was your, you know, broadcaster. Like, I'm in prison. Are we good with that? Is this how the story goes? Christianity Today editor Russell Moore talks about the validity of the doubts of these prophets. He says the prophet Elijah wasn't crazy to believe that he had encountered a hopeless situation. In his time, the people of God were captive to idols, to vicious, predatory, narcissistic leadership. But Elijah had to get to the point where he could hear God saying to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? John the Baptist was not being unreasonable when he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? 
And when the disciples on the road to Emmaus said to their traveling companion, the recently crucified Jesus, we'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Jesus revealed to them that their hopes had been met in ways they could not have imagined until that very moment. More recently, we have this incredible articulation of Mother Teresa in a book. Um, it was, it's called Come Be My Light. And it's these letters to her spiritual directors and guides where she's expressing this deep interior darkness and doubt. She's asking for prayer in one. She says she's operating on a blind faith, that there's this icy cold within her. In a later letter, she says, please pray for me that it may please God to lift this darkness from my soul for only a few days. For sometimes the agony of desolation is so great, and at the same time, the longing for the absent one so deep. The only prayer I can still pray, I can still say is sacred heart of Jesus. I trust in me. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you have been at these points in your life where you're humming along and things are working and the rules are working and it's input, output, and it's like, okay, I know how to do this. You take care of your body and your body works. You put money into an investment account and you get a return back. Look at that. You work hard at your job, you get promoted. You work on your emotional intelligence, you find a life partner. Yay, good job, right? And you're like, and you're like, this is working. It's working, yay, yay, yay. And you know what you're kind of doing like secretly? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but like I was doing, when, when people's lives would start to like break down, the wheels would come off, I'd be like, I guess they don't know the rules. Because if you do the rules, the rules work. So just do the rules. And then sometime you do the rules, you follow the formulas, you say the prayers, you do the things, you eat the food, and then it doesn't work. What? What do we do with that? That's the point of deconstruction. And it's not just the circumstances. This is not the only part that's hard. I think that maybe one of the hardest parts about this is like we're going through something maybe internally, externally, or both, but then it feels like God himself isn't doing what we thought, right? So if you think back to like John the Baptist, he's in a hard spot. He's got a death sentence. He's in prison. That's bad. Those are bad circumstances. But then Jesus is not bailing him out. What? Isn't that your job? Aren't we bros? Like, what's going on here? God starts to take a different shape or feels absent, and there's this sense of incredible loss. It's like the loss of who I thought I was, the loss of who I thought God was. It's very, very real this sense of loss. And I really appreciate what um, the author of Sarah Bessie says in this Relevant Magazine article. She says, there's a sense of, always a sense of grief that comes with deconstruction. I think a lot of times you have that sort of feeling that we only have one of two options, which is to either double down and pretend everything's fine and stuff your questions down and your doubts and things where where you feel like maybe it doesn't add up or you feel like you don't belong anymore. Those are your options. Just silence the, the questions, just make it stop. Or if you choose to hold on to your questions that maybe there's not a place for you, that, that maybe you don't actually believe in God, maybe you don't even have a faith, maybe you're not a part of this faith journey. 
And the Catholic priest and author Richard Rohr also contributed to this article. And, and he said, you don't move to the next level of faith without going through a necessary period of darkness. Necessary period of darkness. When you've never had that in your background, it's all about building this coherent, consistent system where you actually love your understanding of faith. That's not the love of God anymore. That's an idol called certitude. Whoa. An idol. So during this season of deconstruction, there's this surprising disappointment. Like a lot of times, like surprise is like, surprise, yay, good. No, this is not, not that. It's like, surprise, nothing works. And then it doesn't work, and it doesn't work. God himself begins to disappoint our expectations. And I remember like in some of these seasons of my life, there would be this, um, there's this verse, and I, I don't know where it is, Isaiah maybe, it says like, those who hope in the Lord will never be disappointed. And I was like, really? Because I'm like really disappointed right now. <laughs> like, is that, and I like try to find the original translation. I was like, I don't think that is, ma- no, this doesn't make sense. <clears throat> I'm like, I'm hoping in the Lord. Okay, maybe I'm not. You know, and then it's like, the, you know, you apply the try harder method. Try harder. It's like, it doesn't work. You know, what do you do with that? But the thing that's happening is that everything that is false, everything that is fluff, everything that's styrofoam, the things that can't stand up, the things that lack substance in our lives are actually going through a crucible, a crucible that burns them up in these seasons. And, and so in, in Hebrews, um, there's this line that says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. That's what's happening in our souls. And you know what sucks? <sighs> Is that if you like... if you take styrofoam and put it in a box and then you you're like this box is full of styrofoam and then you smush it down smush 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 do you know how much is actually you got a lot of room in that box don't you so many times we're filled up with these ideas and thoughts and conspiracies and hopes and fantasies about God in ourselves and the world, and it is just a box of styrofoam. And when there's a little bit of pressure or a lot of pressure, there's nothing there. And that is a really, really, really uncomfortable feeling to find out that we had this box that was full of something that I could rely on, right? There's something in it. And that feels good, the idol of certitude, right? But it is because God is so committed to our our truth and our journey that he's willing to allow us to be exposed to the emptiness, to the empty spaces. He wants us to see what's really there. And he wants us to see that, like, yes, on the other side of the wall, there is this, you know, immense abundance But I think that really there's actually just, when it comes to like what our true faith is, it's more of like a spinal column. It's not all of these things. It's just like this core. It's this one, it almost seems small. It almost seems like, well, it's not all flowery. It's not all like, you know, like this big um, showy thing. But it it is an anchor. It is a thing that, that is, is, is real, and it can hold you. 
And it is like leaning into that thing that is real that allows us to emerge on the other side whenever that happens. Peter Enns, in his book, The Sin of Certainty, urges us to move away from the false conviction that we can know and should know all facts confidently about our lives and faith. He says, correct thinking provides a sense of certainty. Without it, we fear that faith is on life support at best, dead and buried at worst. Who wants a dead or dying faith? So this fear of losing a handle on certainty leads to a preoccupation with correct thinking, making sure familiar beliefs are defended and supported at all costs. It reduces the life of faith to sentry duty, a 24-7 task of pacing the ramparts, scanning the horizons to fend off incorrect thinking in ourselves and others, too engrossed to come inside the halls and enjoy the banquet. A faith like that is stressful and tedious to maintain, moving toward different ways of thinking, even just trying on a different way of thinking for a while to see how it fits, is perceived as a compromise to faith or as giving up on faith altogether. But nothing could be further from the truth. Aligning faith in God and certainty about what we believe and needing to be right in order to maintain a healthy faith, these do not make for a healthy faith in God. In a nutshell, that's the problem. And that's what I mean by the sin of certainty. So... How do we respond when we realize that we are idolizing certainty, when we realize that our box of styrofoam doesn't really have anything in it, when the wheels start to fall off, when God isn't reliable, when you read the scripture and it says, you'll never be put to shame, you'll never be disappointed, and you're like, I feel like I'm put to shame, I feel like I'm humiliated, I think this, like, what is the point of my faith? What do we do? And, you know... <laughs> It feels like a very ironic to be like, here are three things you can do, right? When it's like, isn't the whole point that nothing works? Okay, so I understand that. And so that's why I'm not gonna call these like actions, okay? I wanna call them responses because it's, it's something that's happening inside of us that we can do. And they're invitations. These are principles. These are things that are helping me and because I, this is where I am right now. You know, I'm not, like, if, if I was to come up here and tell you, like, I'm through the wall and I'm in stage five or six, you would be very disappointed. You'd be like, I was hoping that Sarah's stage five and six would be, like, a lot more love and generosity and kindness and less, like, kind of grumpy statements and cynicism and sarcasm because, you know, there's a little bit of that, right? And so I'm not there. I, I'm... I'm I'm sitting here, like many of you, and I'm hoping and believing and enduring this, this stage, and letting God transform me through it. And so these are some of the responses that I'm trying to turn my heart toward, and I want to invite you towards them as well. The first one is embrace mystery. In our quest for certainty, and in our view that these unquestionable beliefs about faith make us safe, like they give us security, but they also help us become trustworthy. Like if I, if someone's asking me about their, about faith and I have like some kind of wishy-washy response, people will be like, well, I guess I can't trust God, right? So we're kind of taught in our culture. This is a cultural thing. This is not historically Christian because historical Christianity embraces mystery, but American Greek philosophy, like I have to comprehend the thing, and I have to be sure, that makes me reliable to other people, right? Because faith is like a science. 
right? We're supposed to know it. We're, we go to school. We, we're, we go to seminary, and we learn the faith. And we now we, and we now we know it all. And now we know how it goes, and we know the buttons to push to make the God work. Right? And then eventually it doesn't work. And so what do we do with that? But these are misunderstandings that we have about mystery in our culture. Mystery is actually essential for an ex- expansive view of faith. And so I think what's interesting is like, you know, where does the word mystery show up in like secular culture? If you go to, to a church, you know, you have the holy mysteries, like a Catholic mass or something like that, the sorrowful mysteries, the joyful mysteries. Um, but if you don't have that background, then the way where you're hearing mystery is you're hearing it in like Sherlock Holmes. Someone has been killed and we will solve it, right? Or there's like that um, very ominous uh, TV show that's like, unsolved mysteries and it's some guy in a chair telling you and you're like oh no the killer is still at large you know and so those are the ways that we understand mystery right it's it's like it's unsolved but it could be solved and someday we will solve it the christian understanding of mystery is something we cannot know we cannot know i don't like that But, I mean, how many times have you, like, tried to understand how God is one in three? Do you ever try to think about, like, how many stars there are? You, like, look up in the sky and think about, okay, so the light I can see is, like, four years old. What? Isn't that amazing? Like, mystery, things we cannot know, things we cannot really comprehend. We actually need to have those experiences. Maybe it was your wedding day or the day that your child was born or like, like a, a trip that you took and you're standing in the mountains or you're standing at the edge of the ocean shore and you're looking at something that is so much bigger than you and it's like you don't even have words. You have been rendered speechless. You're on the edge of something bigger than yourself. That is what it means to encounter mystery. And you can try to be like, well, here's the scientific way that that baby was born and this ocean does this. And it's like, okay, cool. Congratulations on taking this incredible experience and making it two-dimensional. Do we even want to experience life like that? Do we want a God that we can comprehend like that? Do we really want that? We need to stand on the edge of the thing that's bigger than us and embrace the mystery. We need to let it in. We need to let ourselves feel that sense of what? I don't, and sometimes, you guys, mystery isn't always like amazing. It's not always, I remember driving through the road um, along Lake Tahoe and just looking at this kind of moment of awe with the trees and the lake and the mountains and just everything. This is just a moment that stands out to me. Or like how I was, you know, when I would go to the ocean, I remember I love the ocean so much. It's a place of encounter with God. I was at Lake Tahoe. I drove across the state four hours and then back in one day for 30 minutes of the ocean. And I ran in with my clothes on. And yes, this was eight years ago. Because I grew up, you know, in Oregon and I love the ocean. And, and so like, because it's like, I want to be with that thing that's bigger than me. But that's because it's, it's amazing and it's lovely. But some mysteries are kind of horrible. And the Catholics have an entire category of that, the sorrowful mysteries. These sorrowful things are happening and we cannot understand. We need that. 
we need to stand on the edge of something that's bigger than us that's also a tragedy and invite Jesus into the big, giant gap that's there. This is good for us. Sarah Bessie, in this article that I referenced earlier, she says the very questions and doubts and things I've been fighting for so long ended up being a really beautiful invitation from the Holy Spirit. And I found a third way, which is something between doubling down and burning it all down. It's kind of an invitation from God that there's this goodness in here. There are good people. They may not have the answers, but the journey is good. This sets up the second, the second response really well. Get to know Jesus, the person. I don't think that we can truly deconstruct and then rebuild or like find the core unless we know Jesus, the person. Jesus accused the Pharisees of adding to faith with the traditions of humans. He was like, you guys are practicing this and this and this, and that's not me. I didn't, I didn't tell you to do that. You are missing the point. So much of deconstruction is all the points that we've been missing. Missing the forest for the trees. All these like very specific kinds of things that we've built into our lives for our own security, our own certainty, and when they don't work anymore... We think we've attached them to God and they never were. God's like, I didn't do that. I didn't make that rule up. I didn't say that. I didn't promise that. That wasn't me. But because we have attached those thoughts and ideas and, and expectations and, and even things that pastors have said or podcasters or religious people we've relied on, we've thought that is God, right? And when it doesn't work, we think that God doesn't work. And so I want to encourage you to keep talking to Jesus. Don't just stop reading your Bible or talking to God and just listen to podcasts and and argue with people on the internet. Keep talking to Jesus. Be like, I think this is a bunch of BS. I don't like this. I think that you are possibly a crock. I think I might be talking to a wall right now. I don't know what is going on, but I'm pretty sure that this is all nonsense. You can say all of those things to God. Why? Do you think that God's like, wow, I cannot believe the audacity. If he knows you, wasn't he just kind of like waiting around for that? And, and when we get honest with our friends and our family members, if those people are trustworthy, doesn't that make the relationship better? If they're not trustworthy, it makes the relationship worse, and that's how you know, okay? But we, if, if God is real and God is good, test it out. Be honest. See if he's still there, because when we see Thomas and we see the men on the road to, the, to Emmaus and we see John the Baptist and they're asking questions and they're deconstructing, Jesus doesn't ignore them. He re- responds. He is present with it. It's okay, and so I really want to encourage you, like, as you're getting to know him, I, I always call this, you've heard me say this if you've, if you've heard me preach, I call this putting God in a headlock, right? Like, this is what um, Jacob did, and he got his name Israel, which means wrestles with God. That is our divine heritage, is to wrestle with God. Isn't that cool? We have a God that will wrestle with us, who wants to go to the mat. Now, are you going to win? No. <laughs> but that's the point. Right? Like he walks away with a limp and a blessing. He walks away with a new name. It's incredible. And it's, it's our heritage. This is what we are being invited into. It's not, we're not in being invited to know all the answers or to be real cool and famous. 
That's not the invitation. The invitation is to wrestle with God forever. And you know what? He doesn't answer everything. He sure didn't answer Job. Job is like, why are all these things happening to me? And God says some very ethereal things like, do you know where they store the lightning? And you're like, what? That's not the answer. But that worked because he was speaking to his soul. He was speaking what Job needed to hear. He was speaking about his sovereignty. And and Job got an answer from God. Was it the answer? Did it make sense? No. That's why we've started with embrace mystery. We have to get there. We have to embrace mystery. We have to, God is going to answer us in ways that we can't know. But you know what? Like Josh and I, we've been married for 15 years, 15 and a half years. And there's a lot of things, you know, like, right? If we could just like change each other perfectly and understand each other perfectly. It's like, oh, wouldn't this be so easy, right? Like I would always be on time and you would be very flexible and we would have no problems. Uh, but those are the problems that we will always have. And, and so like, but it's like, I like him and I like the engagement. And I, even though I, I might be annoyed or he might be annoyed. It's like, there's this, there's a person on the other side of this. And that's who we're being invited to get to know. Not just putting God in a headlock, putting people in a headlock, putting Jesus in a headlock, putting our, you know, like this is, this is how we grow. This is, there's an intimacy to the wrestling. It's so important. And finally, our third one. When we are disillusioned and we don't know if faith works, sometimes like as things start to break down, we're like, I don't even know how to act. Maybe I just need to become, you know, sort of hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, just do whatever I want. Because clearly like nothing matters. And what's cool, which I appreciate, is James telling us that doing good matters. In fact, if you're not sure if you have faith, you can practice faith by doing good, by works of justice. Um, James says in, in his second chapter of his book, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Can your good ideas save you? Can checking all the right theological boxes save you? Apparently not. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, you have good theology? Good. Even the demons believe that. You know who I, I, I often say this, I'm like, you know who has really good theology? Satan. So congratulations on your fantastic theology. Good job, you know all the things, right? And it, doesn't, it didn't help Satan obey. It didn't help Satan be connected to God, did it? Knowing the stuff, right, it, it causes us to be proud. It says knowledge puffs up, love builds up. As we encounter Jesus, as we embrace mystery, as we do good anyway, it is love that gets formed and shaped inside of us and builds us up. Actions are faith made visible, even if you're not sure. I remember being at a conference when I was 18 years old. It was like my first little, you know, moment of deconstruction, I guess. And I remember I was like leading this. I was one of the leaders on this conference for my high school. 
And I literally had started to question the existence of God and were like, it's like a Catholic prayer retreat. <laughs> and people are like coming up to me and asking for prayer. And I'm like, words, 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 words. Because <laughs> I like didn't feel anything. It was so wild. But it was like the process of taking these steps and doing good and responding to people who needed something from me was part of what kept me connected. It's so important that we do that. So I want to conclude here. No matter where you are on your faith journey, maybe you're like, I can solidly see myself in stage five and six. I'm feeling that sense of, of room and alignment and generosity. I'm so happy. I, I ser- Like, that's, please, can we hang out? Like, I need to just borrow whatever it is. I need to understand. I need the hope. Because I, I do have, I do believe that. But it's like, ah, oh, this is hard. Maybe you're here. And maybe you need to do all of these things. Or maybe you're earlier in your faith and you're still building and you're still growing. And you're like, I don't really, maybe this message isn't quite hitting for you. There's still room. What if we were to build these things in at stage one when we're just meeting Jesus or stage two when we're getting into our sense of discipleship and belonging and, and structure? Or what if at stage three when we're all about achievement, we also embrace mystery. We also remember to get to know Jesus the person and be honest with him. What if we were honest with Jesus the whole time and not just like when it was hard? What if we were honest with Jesus and we're like, hey, Jesus, I'm feeling really good about all the things I've accomplished, and I feel like I'm getting some points from you, so if you want to correct that, feel free, but I feel like I'm getting a lot of Jesus heaven points here with all this good stuff that I'm doing. What if we were that honest the whole time? We would have those rails built by the time you get to the wall. You'd be like, this is what we do. What if you could push through and do good anyway? So I want to invite you to choose one of those practices wherever you are. You don't have to be breaking down to need these things. We, these are the practices of our faith. These are the rhythms that help us and ground us when things aren't working right, when God is not responding as we expected. Take a step by embracing mystery, getting to know Jesus as a person, or doing good anyway in spite of our feelings. So I want to invite our communion servers and our worship team back up. And I'm just going to pray for us. Um, We're going to do the Lord's Prayer, and I'm going to, and then I'll close with a a prayer um, before we go into communion. So will you stand with me as we say the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mosaic Church podcast. For more teachings, resources, and other news, please visit mosaicmhk.com.